Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is John Bogle. Mr. Bogle founded the Vanguard Group in 1974 and served as chief executive officer until 1996. The Vanguard Group, with $1.1 trillion under management, is one of the largest mutual fund organizations in the world. The Vanguard 500 Index Fund, the largest fund in the group, is the largest single mutual fund, and that was founded by Mr. Bogle in 1975, and it was the first index mutual fund. Mr. Bogle, welcome to Econ Talk. Good to be with you, Russ. You were born in 1929, which was a very bad time for the stock market, and the years that followed were, were not particularly good for the economy. Do you remember those times either directly or through the stories of your parents? And I'd be curious how you think that might have affected you growing up that way. Well, um, we had a it's kind of interesting um, observation because we had a, a nice little family fortune uh, based on uh, my grandfather's success as a businessman, um, Grandfather Bogle, and uh, it vanished in the Depression. Uh, so, uh, I, you know, I don't ever recall living <laughs> living a life with a silver spoon in my mouth, uh, but we always had nice friends and, and uh, were able to live in, in perfectly satisfactory houses. Uh, we just had to work for what we got, we three Bogle boys. So uh, I don't have really memories of things changing, but I but I do remember that I grew up uh, having to earn what I got, well, I ha- and uh, that's uh, probably an unfair advantage that I've had over most other people in in the line of work in which I find myself. I asked you because my uh, my father was born in 1930 and my mother in 1932, and they're different than than my uh, siblings and myself in terms of their attitudes towards money and. Uh, we didn't grow up wealthy, but we certainly grew up in a more secure financial environment than uh, my parents did. And it, it is, for example, ironically, my parents are very biased against the stock market as an investment. They think it's very risky. They, they're more likely to invest in junk bonds, which, of course, are also very risky. Yeah, they may be riskier. Yeah, but 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 it's not the stock market. The stock market uh, makes my dad very uncomfortable. Uh, and I, I view that as a, you know, intellectually, I think he understands the virtues of it, but emotionally, it's very hard for him to get over that childhood, uh, and uh, it, it definitely colored the way he looks at money. You know, it's 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 one of the real reasons I wrote this new book uh, called "A Little Book of Common Sense Investing," and that is, I don't think people should pay any attention to the stock market. I call it in the book a giant distraction, and uh, the reason is it, it turns us toward looking at prices every day. That's what the markets do, towards market expectations. And investing is about owning businesses and enjoying the return on capital that businesses have been earning since time immemorial and will continue to earn in the future. One, we don't know how big that return will be, but when there's a lot of capital employed, uh, businesses make uh, earnings, and those earnings in a growing economy like that of the United States uh, grow year after year, as it happens at about the economy's growth rate, and then they pay dividends, and uh, you can put them in the bank. So if people would just look at investing as not owning the stock market, 
but as owning business, uh, I think they would make a huge step forward in uh, their ability to deal with what goes on in this funny world of financial markets. Well, part of our challenge, I think, as investors is we're used to the sports page. We like to look up the box scores every morning and see how our teams did and see how our favorite players did. And uh, I almost never open the financial pages. I do I do read the sports section every day, and I'm a very uh, avid investor, but I'm uh, that's very profound and useful advice not to pay attention to the stock market. Yeah, I mean, I'm a big sports page reader, too, and I like the stats. I've liked them since I was a little boy. Uh, and uh, yet, and, and I, of course, given the line of work in which I find myself, I look, at the, I look at the financial pages every day. But I look at my investment portfolio once a year. All of it's invested here at Vanguard, uh, very conservatively invested. I'm about 60% in, in uh, bonds and about 40% in stocks. I'll never change that. And I follow my own self-imposed rule. Uh, which I try and give investors, and they smile when I say it. And I say the first rule is don't peak. And I actually kind of violate that rule, you could argue, because I peak once a year. That's it. Yeah, I think that's allowed. Uh, you've written that the secret to investing is that there is no secret. And I think the uh, people who feel otherwise are constantly pouring over those numbers looking for some kind of edge or trick or quick fix. And it's a terrible, terrible, uh, terrible habit. Well, sure. I mean, investing is really, I mean, if you want to use a sports analogy, it's a lot like that. I'm, I'm not accustomed to using sports analogies. I think they get overdone. But investing is all about blocking and tackling, you know, just doing the fundamental things right, yeah. getting your asset allocation right, uh, making sure your costs are low, making sure your risks are commensurate with your ability to deal with risk, uh, diversifying. Investing for the long term. These these things are not complicated. As a wise man said, uh, quoted right at the beginning of my book, uh, investing is simple, but it's not easy. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, we all know how to lose weight. Uh, dieting is simple, but it's not easy. Yeah. Eat less and exercise more. It's you uh, got it, and you can and you can make a decent living writing a book that explains that. Yeah, uh, well, well, in a, in well, a well, different well, way with different words, but we'll, <laughs> we'll hope we'll hope that my book does that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a nice book. Uh, it's I like the word little in the title. Uh, it, it is a uh, very accessible and and short uh, introduction to basic principles, which I think is always a good thing and always valuable. Yeah, well, it's and it's a little bit feisty. I think people will enjoy that. No, it's got a number of anecdotes. Yep. I think people enjoy anecdotes. It's got a parable. People like it's stories. It's got a parable. It begins with a parable. Yep. Uh, and uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun to write. Well, let me ask you about your portfolio, not in any detail, but about a, a theoretical question related to investing. You said you're 40% in equity and 60% in um, fixed income. One of the challenges I think people have, and this is uh, way too practical for econ talk, but we're going to have a digression here. One of the challenges people have is is finding the right vehicles for their so-called low-risk investment outside of equity. A friend of mine uh, who's quite a bit younger than you are but thinks of himself as conservative has a similar mix. Uh, he's, he's about 40 years old, and he's very conservative, so he's got 40% of his portfolio in stocks and 60% in bonds. When I pressed him, I found out that the 60% in bonds are in bond funds, not in individual bonds, and that the largest holding he had was in a, a bond fund that had a, an average maturity of the holdings of about 20 years. 
and I explained to him that he was taking a great deal of risk. He thought that was his safe money, but he was taking a great deal of risk that interest rates would rise, that the principal uh, asset value of that holding would go down, and his so-called safe uh, part of his portfolio would end up being quite a bit riskier. You talk about that a little bit in in, uh, in your books. Uh, what is an investor's best strategy in a world where bond funds have interest rate risk to their uh, principal? Well, let me let me first uh, respond by saying something that every single investor should know, and almost no investors do. And that is about 98% of all bond funds aren't worth the powder to blow them to smithereens. Uh, why aren't they uh, worthwhile? Well, in the bond market, returns are fairly predictable from one manager to another. It's not like the stock market. You know, if the bond market delivers a 7% return, uh, you're not going to have any if, if you're talking about investment quality bonds, treasuries and investment grade corporates. You're not going to have any managers with 15% returns, and you're not going to have any managers with 0% returns in a 7% bond market. Um, because the, 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 every, every, just about everybody is going to be concentrated between gross returns on their investment portfolios, portfolios they manage, of say uh, 6 to 8%. Uh, There's going to be a huge concentration there because the bond market is a very homogeneous market. So the problem with bond funds is that there's, the managers have very little ability to add significant value, uh, but the managers have awesome ability to detract from that value. And that is to say, and today the bond yield on a, on a treasury corporate portfolio is probably a little bit below 5%, but let's choose 5%. When you go out and buy a bond fund, in, in almost all bond funds are load funds. They have sales commissions, and that commission is, interestingly enough, approximately 5%. So when you buy a bond fund from your broker, you've just said goodbye to your first five years of income, first year of income, excuse me. Uh, also, most bond funds have expense ratios of around 1% uh, per year. Now, that's the average. And when you count transaction costs of trading all those bonds and so on, uh, it probably may, means the, they're going to have another hidden cost of, say, a quarter of a percent per year. Well, that means that even when you get through the, the uh, getting rid of that sales load in the first year with zero net income, in effect, that uh, four, that 5% uh, bond return is going down to three and three quarters percent. That's and what the bond fund will deliver. This is not... And they magic. Can, this is not, not something I'm making it up. All you have to do is look at the record. But they try to beat that by taking riskier, riskier There's some evidence holdings. that they take may make riskier bond investments to compensate for the cost. And I, I touch on that briefly in, in the book. So what the what the bond fund investor want must do is buy the lowest cost bond funds that are offered by reputable uh, mutual fund organizations. And uh, you know I don't need to be commercial to say. Uh, that Vanguard runs our bond funds for around 15 basis points a year, 0.15 of 1%, and uh, nobody can beat that. So unless you get a manager that can overcome that high cost differential, and I wouldn't rely on him or her being able to do that con consistently in the future, uh, you really just have to say, uh, first look at all the low-cost bond funds and then make your choice from them. Now, when you get into how long those maturities should be, uh, whether you should have 20-year bonds or 10-year bonds or 5-year bonds or 2-year bonds. Um, we, we created here quite a few years ago uh, series bond funds, 
uh, and no one had ever done it that way before. Um, Explain so how the they investor work. investor knows clearly just what kind of bonds he's buying. So we have a short-term bond fund with an average maturity of around a couple of years, an intermediate-term bond fund uh, for in, in both municipals and corporates and treasuries, <clears throat> and all of them put together, all the, all the taxable bonds put together, and um, with a maturity around eight years, and the long-term portfolio has a maturity averaging probably 15 or 16 years. And they are, as you say, very, very sensitive to interest rate moves. So for me, if you have money in the bank and want a cash reserve uh, but don't see any immediate needs, I'd say a short-term bond fund. It will fluctuate, but over a few years, those fluctuations uh, will be inevitably overwhelmed by the higher return you get over a, over a money market account. Um, if you're willing to take a little more risk for your principal, I like the intermediate-term bond fund because the record shows you get a small premium from a long-term bond fund, but it may well not be worth the hassle of uh, you know seeing the bonds move up and down. Uh, and I also want to emphasize this. Those interest rate movements uh, that you speak of, as interest rates go up and down and bond prices go down and up is the way the pattern works, need not concern a truly long-term bond investor. If you think about it for a minute, when you buy a long-term bond fund and are looking out for, say, the next 25 or 30 years, the one thing you should be praying for every night is for interest rates to go up because the reinvestment rate in your bond portfolio will also go up. Yes, the principal will go down for a year or so, but it will gradually come back up because bonds will be retired at maturity for their par value, uh, $0.10 cents in the dollar if they're, if they're quality bonds. So there's a lot to think about in the bond area, uh, but the main thing is think about sales loads, think about operating costs, and think about what maturity uh, and, and in, in terms of maturity, what, how much risk you're prepared to deal with. Uh, shifting gears, uh, you were an economics major uh, at Princeton. And you're you're one of my favorite economics majors who didn't become an economist per se. The other being Bill Belichick of the New England Patriots, someone who, like yourself, found a slightly more practical application <laughs> of his of his tools. But I'd be curious if you remember anything from your economics classes. Um, some people in the investment community, who I will not name, like to pick on economists as uh, theoretical fools. Uh, it's a it's a common uh, sport I've noticed among uh, investment folks. Um, did it have any impact on you being an economics major? Uh, when people ask me what economics is good for, I always say, well, one of the things it's good for is is understanding that index mutual funds are um, probably the best you can do. Uh, and that's pretty important. Um, I'd be curious if your economics training had any impact on you as a as a uh, investment leader. And I, I know you were initially a skeptic about indexing, so I'd be curious what made you change your mind, if that's true. Well, yeah, actually, curiously enough, uh, I have not been a skeptic about indexing. Uh, in fact, in my senior thesis at Princeton, I'll come back to that in a moment, uh, I, I, I said flat out, uh, it was on the mutual fund industry, I said mutual funds can make no claim to superiority over the market averages, i.e. funds can't beat the indexes. And uh, that just kind of lay fallow. I'd done a, you know, not a detailed statistical study. The numbers were kind of hard to come by in 1951, 1950 and 1951. 
but uh, it was quite clear that mutual funds would kind of give you the market return because they were mostly middle-of-the-road funds there. It wasn't kind of this wild and woolly industry we have today. And costs were lower, but uh, when you looked at mutual fund returns, most of them gave you the, the market return less the amount of their costs. I guess you could say, what else is new? Uh, so uh, the main thing about economics for me, a threshold point, is having when I majored in economics, I had to write my senior thesis in economics. And my goal was to write a senior thesis on a subject nobody had ever written a senior thesis on before. And I stumbled across uh, the December 1949 issue of Fortune magazine, uh, where there was an article about an industry that I had never heard of before, the mutual fund industry. And I thought, wow, that's going to be the subject of my thesis. So the overriding fact above all for me is economics led me into the investment business or dragged me into the investment business. And now, more specifically, or more, or more to the point, do I remember you know, each lesson, each supply <laughs> and demand curve, uh, each study of uh, margin of utility? Uh, no, I do not. But you remember the jargon. That's good. Uh, well, yeah, I'm okay on all that. And I also remember uh, Dr. Samuelson's first book, which I read then, uh, first edition of his economics yeah. Um an introductory analysis, and uh, I should say much more than parenthetically that we've been in touch over all these years since 1951, and uh, my new book is dedicated yeah. to Paul Samuelson, and he's he's thrilled with that. I'm thrilled that he gave me permission to do that. Uh, but um, that was a book more about the economic ag- aggregates. We, we'd call that, uh, as you know, macroeconomics rather than microeconomics, of which yeah. we've been speaking earlier. And uh, I just used a quote, a wonderful quote from from that, the introduction to that book way back in 1951, just the truth today as it was then. And that is, um, he said in his introduction, talking about uh, free competition and capitalism, and he said, um, the problem with free competition and capitalism, like the problem of Christianity, is that it's never actually been tried. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, so they, I brought uh, you know those lessons down with me over the years. I don't know how many people around are quoting from an economics textbook they read in 1951. Yeah, that's a good that's but, a good uh, it's uh it's been with me for a long time and I'm just uh a very 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 lucky guy that this that majoring in economics led me into my career because nothing else I can imagine uh would have placed me in this tiny little mutual fund industry of 1951. Well, I I couldn't agree more agree more with uh Paul Samuelson, that capitalism hasn't been tried here at EconTalk. We all, we encourage a movement toward the uh, the real thing. Um, but I'm thrilled to know that your senior thesis was instrumental in getting into this business. Uh, it now joins uh, Fred Smith's thesis on Overnight Express. Uh, yeah, I've heard that more than once. Yeah, as, as the two most important senior theses ever written in America. Um, the other thing I want to mention is Whenever I fly in an airplane and I tell somebody I'm an economist and then I write about economics, one of the reactions I've, I've gotten is, oh, uh, too bad Too bad my husband isn't here. He loves the stock market. And the world often equates the two, economics and, and the stock market. They, they have something to do with each other. Uh, but economics is, is really about human behavior and the choices we make. And, of course, the financial choices we make are one subset of those, and they're very important. Um, Let's go back to that first index fund. So you thought of it as a, as a glimmer in 1950. Um, 
when did you first put it into practice? 1975, correct? 1975. And uh, what had what, what happened? I mean, it's a, really a, kind of a nice, I mean, I'll try and make it reasonably brief, but it's sort of an interesting story because we started Vanguard in 1974. And uh, it, was, it came out of a, a very, the formation of Vanguard came out of a very politicized situation. Uh, I'd been fired from my job as the, the uh, chief executive of Wellington Management Company. But since mutual fund managers, that would be Wellington Management, uh, have a different board of directors, slightly different, there's overlaps, uh, with the board of the Wellington Fund and its associated funds, two different boards uh, with some overlap, um, I decided to, uh, some, to do something, to try and do something that I'd wanted to do for a long, long time. And that is not make mutual funds the captives of a management company and marching to the management company's drummer uh, being a, being looked at as a as a way to make get for management companies to get rich, but rather to mutualize those uh, Wellington mutual funds and have them run for the benefit of their own shareholders, rather than for the benefit of the management company shareholders. This was an awesomely good idea, if I do say so myself in retrospect. But the directors refused to do it. It was too big a step. Uh, the air was too politicized. They had the feeling they should reach a unanimous decision. And uh, I'm not so much on unanimous decisions because I think you get lowest common denominator. But they finally agreed to let me move over from the management, out of the management company, but let me continue my job at the funds, but only be responsible for administering the assets, the shareholder record keeping, the fund accounting, the legal compliance, and things like that. I was not allowed to get into marketing or distribution or investment management. So it was clear to me that if I wanted to make Vanguard into anything important, uh, those were the two key functions, marketing and, and investment management, uh, that determine whether you succeed or fail. Yes, of course you have to be an efficient administrator, uh, but that's not a driver. That's a, a condition uh, necessary, uh, but not a condition sufficient uh, to, to have you grow. Uh, so my first try was to get into investment management, and I wasn't allowed to. And this idea came back to me from about the index fund, uh, and I'd read some articles, one by Paul Samuelson, of all things, called Challenge to Judgment, and it re-peaked my interest in uh, in indexing. But it also gave me a vehicle to get into investment management uh, for Vanguard because the index, I, as I argued to the board, didn't need a manager. Uh, so we could do that. Uh, we didn't have to hire a staff. It's an administrative job rather than a management job, by and large. So it was, uh, you know, a little, um, one might say, duplicitous, uh, disingenuous, uh, but it worked. Hmm. Uh, I got the vote. I got the fund formed. Uh, I showed the directors in great detail, much more detail than I'd done in my thesis, how the S&P 500 had fared against the average fund. I did, I did those spreadsheets all by myself, by hand in those days. And uh, the average in, the average um, uh, mutual fund had a return that was about 1.4%, just what you'd expect, 1.3%, I think the number was actually, uh, behind that of the uh, of the average uh, of the Standard and Poor's 500 stock index. And so it was a powerful and persuasive case. And if you I can't remember the exact numbers, but if you if you looked at the presentation I gave to the board, I would have then shown that over the past 25 years, a million dollars invested in the index with that 1.3% differential, uh, and the index grew to something like $26 million, and in the average mutual fund, 
uh, grew to something like $17 million. That's what that 1.3% differential meant. And so we got the index fund going. And what was the initial reaction? Terrible. <laughs> uh, it was called Bogle's Folly. Uh, the underwriting was a failure. We had to have some way to bring in new money in the business conditions of those days. You know, the market was falling apart. Uh, just just starting to recover a little bit from the 73, 74, 50% decline, same kind of decline we just experienced in uh, 2000, 2002. And um, so uh, the underwriters thought they could raise $150 million, and they raised $11 million. And I said to them, when we had our meeting at the end, I said, you know, we don't even have enough money to buy all 500 stocks in the S&P 500. And they said, well, do you think we ought to just send everybody their money back? And I said, are you kidding? We have the world's first index fund. And now it happens to be at $185 billion, the largest mutual fund in the world. So when, Persistence, I guess. Yeah, persistence. That's a virtue. So when, when they said, well, let's send them the money back, and you said no, uh, what did they say back? Just hope that it improves? Uh, well, they didn't care. The deal was over. In other words, you do the underwriting, like an initial public offering, and believe me, the day after the underwriting is over, they have forgotten you. You're on your own. And how did you survive that opening? Uh... Well, you know, one one is not charmed when, when, when I hear it referred to as Bogle's folly. But I knew that it would work. It had worked in the past. But we knew why it had worked in the past. That's a very important point. Great and that point. Is, you, you can look <laughs> back and see things that work in the past. With no reason at all, it can work in the future. Right. But indexing had worked in the past because it costs just as diversified, more diversified than the average mutual fund. Uh, but when it costs less, uh, the investor gets more. Uh, you know, everybody knows that whatever returns the stock market is kind enough to deliver to us, uh, investors uh, earn those returns on average in an eight percent market. I.e., we all, uh, we all. Together, all of us investors together earn 8%. But that's before costs. And when we take costs out, we lose to that 8% by the amount of the costs. So for a typical mutual fund, believe it or not, those costs come to about 2.5% and uh, per year. And that means that uh, the well, when the market gives 8 the average mutual fund investor gets 5.5%. And uh, compounded over a lifetime, that means that about 80% of the investor's return goes to the financial system and 20% goes to the investor, despite the fact that the investor it is the investor who has taken 100%, put up 100% of the capital and taken 100% of the risk. So that that argument is pretty um, pretty ironclad. It is, and yet, it is ironclad. It is what yet, I call the relentless rules of humble arithmetic. And yet, as large as the index 500 fund and and your competitor funds at other at other companies are there's still a relatively small share of the total market and i think part of the inexorable appeal of the managed fund which i think is wrong myself but here's the appeal and i want to hear your reaction to it well okay the average fund's going to pay 5.5% after costs but that's the average i would never just take a random pick of of the managed mutual funds, the actively managed funds, I'm going to pick the smart managers. I'm going to go out and pick people from the right-hand tail who have successfully beaten the S&P 500 
In fact, I'll be able to find some who've beaten it year after year. As we know, that is going to happen. So this uh, index fund thing is for suckers. Yeah, I'll save on costs, but if I can pick people who are smarter than the average, I'll I'll make a killing. Uh, what's the counterargument to that? First, I'd say that's the argument, absolutely. And you'd do well as a Wall Street stockbroker. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a it's a seductively uh, dangerous field. It's a dangerous <laughs> argument, and 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 we know it's a dangerous argument. There's actually a chapter in the book uh, devoted to this, and that is as investors, it's so easy to look back. Uh, but so difficult to, to look forward. You know, everybody knows who did well yesterday, but nobody knows who's going to do well tomorrow. So I say in the book, uh, performance comes and goes, but costs go on forever, just like clockwork. And we know from the record, we know how investors make their choices, and investors are terrible stock pickers, primarily because they look backward. Uh, and, uh, you know, I have a little bit in the book showing uh, the best 10 mutual funds of uh, 1996-99, the great bull market, and uh, there were around 800 funds in, in, this, uh, in, in the industry then. And those top 10 funds ranked very roughly from 790th to 800th, dead last. The first shall be last, dead last in the three years following when the market went down. So performance chasing particularly in, in, in these, these superinflated markets, is the investor's worst enemy. Oh. Uh, and uh, we have some data in the book. It's very easy to measure how mutual fund investors do compared to mutual funds themselves. And what we see is, you look at the record of a fund, let's say it's gone up 10% a year, uh, and with very good record in recent years. Well, the fund was little at the beginning of that 10-year period. Then people recognized it had a good record, maybe about the seventh year, and began to pour money in it, and then the record gets bad. This is the conventional pattern. If it doesn't get bad, it at least returns to average after all that money comes in. And uh, so the investor is his or her own worst enemy by picking funds there. And we show that the typical fund investor uh, does about earns about three percentage points per year less than the typical fund. So if we're looking for a typical fund in the future to give us uh, 5.5%, we can intuit, only time will tell, we can intuit that the typical fund investor will earn 2.5%. And now the icing on the cake. Uh, we'll probably have an inflation rate of about 2.5%. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you see where I'm going. Yeah. Uh, an inflation rate of about 2.5%. Uh, in, the, in the foreseeable future, say the next 10 years, it's, it's a decent number. It's what the market seems to be looking for. So your real return for the typical mutual fund investor in the coming decade could be zero. You see, my and dad, I haven't even taken into account the extra taxes that mutual funds inflict on you. Oh, my, see, my dad was right. Stocks are dangerous. Uh, well, stocks ill-chosen. Yeah. And, and stocks, in, you know, in a funny way, to come back to that point, he is right. And that is, when people say to you on the plane, you know, you're an economist, tell me about the stock market, the economist, has, the, the economics has very little to do with the stock market. And most good portfolio managers don't pay attention to what GDP is doing, gross domestic product, uh, and uh, all those economic measures, capital spending, whatever it might be, consumer spending, uh, they ignore them. And in a way, they're right to do it. But economics has everything to do with how business does. It's uh, not the stock market, but the businesses, the corporations, 
that are uh, operating in our economic system. And the simple reality, as I point out in the book, is that America's businesses, and for that matter, the world's businesses, grow at about the same pace as um, in terms of earnings per share uh, as the economy grows. Has to be. I mean, this is not a startling revelation. It's humble arithmetic. So if you, if you, <laughs> if you look at long history, and we have a 6% roughly nominal growth in our economy, and we have a 6% nominal growth in corporate earnings. So economics and business are correlated, highly correlated. But right. economics and the stock market are not. But you don't want to own the stock market, that giant distraction that we discussed at the beginning. You want to own business. You know, the, the other point I want to emphasize, though, for our listeners on the value of economics is the importance of information and the publicness versus privateness of information and the role that prices play. So I think a lot of people have in mind that the the wise investment manager knows something that other people don't know. And I remember when uh, Bill Miller was riding high, uh, beating the uh, the S&P 500 for about, what, 14, 15 years in a row. Yep. And at one point, his largest holding was Amazon. And I thought, well, do you think he knows something about Amazon that, that the rest of us don't know? He's rolling the dice. And you know, last year, the dice didn't come up for him finally, but he'd had a wonderful run. He was one of thousands, as you might predict, in a random world where there is no edge to be gained by actively managing funds. But by rand pure randomness, one fund manager will outperform uh, the S&P 500 over that length of time. But he didn't have any inside information or gut instincts that were better than anyone else's, I don't think. I'm sure those there are those out there. I know there are those out there who disagree. But what economics suggests is that uh, publicly information, publicly available information is embodied in the prices of stocks, and your best bet then is to not look for an edge by picking the, the stocks that are going to do better. The, that information is already in the stock price, but instead invest in the whole market. So that phenomenon – and you add to that the transaction costs of moving in and out, which really punish the investors – uh, and I think you you see the virtues of a of a buy and hold strategy. That well, yeah. In my very first book back in 1993, I, I had a little warning for investors saying, "Never think you know more than the market. Nobody does." And uh, our portfolio managers don't. We know that from the record as a group. Because when and, and, and I think the world of Bill Miller, by the way, I think I bet uh, he's a smart guy. I didn't mean to suggest yeah, he was a moron. He's, he's uh, <laughs> but but investors have to realize really that. If you want to beat the stock market, not I don't think that's a worthy way to look at investing, but that's the way the world looks at it. Yep. If you want to beat the stock market, you've got to be prepared. You as an investor in that fund have to be prepared to have the fund be below par one year out of three. Mm -hmm. A good fund is going to underperform one year out of three. And, of course, the problem, a little bit related to what we talked about a moment ago, is after the two good years, the money pours in. And after the one bad year, the money pours out. Yeah. And you know, it must be obvious to all of, all of your uh, readers or listeners that um, uh, buying buying a fund uh, at the high and selling it at the low is not necessarily a particularly profitable uh, way to build your wealth for your retirement. I'm curious about your strategic decisions at Vanguard to offer actively managed funds. You could have specialized um, and just offered purely in, just index funds. You do have actively managed funds. You do push the cost down on those as much as you can. But did you have any internal discussions or decisions about that? Well, no, because it was really a uh, 
I think you've got the cart and the horse a little bit backward here, if I may say so. Uh, if I may say so, Russ. Uh, and Take a chance. Is, Go ahead. We, we had, when we brought out the index fund, we had about, oh, in round numbers, $2 billion worth of actively managed funds. And after the index fund offering, we had $2 billion of actively managed funds and $11 million of index funds. And uh, I like the idea of, of indexing very, very much. But I'm also uh, a little bit uh, humble in my my ability to say or my willingness to say, well, here's this Wellington Fund, a balanced fund that's been in business since 1928 and uh, with a perfectly nice record, sometimes a little better than others, but a conservative fund. I could tell those Wellington Fund holders, we're going to convert this into a balanced index fund. Well, wait a minute. If they wanted a balanced index fund, they could have bought one. Uh, you know, they seem perfectly happy with Wellington Fund. It's actually done a little bit better than the index in recent years, a little bit worse in earlier years. Uh, but it's going to give you a roughly lifetime record that's similar to that of the index. So I, you know, if, if, if we live in an actively managed world uh, and you believe in indexing, what is it you do? Well, I mean, this may not make me look very good uh, or look very honest, uh, but it certainly makes me be, uh, preserve my reputation for being forthright, and that is my strategy was to make the actively managed funds uh, have the same characteristics that make indexing so attractive. What are those characteristics? Well, first, no sales load when you buy a cost issue. Uh, second, uh, where the, the index fund has no manager, um, make the management fees, negotiate the management fees of the managers of those active funds as low as you can, uh, all the way till the manager almost walks out of the room. We don't want him to walk out of the room because we don't want to lose him. But he's got to be prepared to take a lower fee uh, to keep those expense ratios of the fund. The, the management fee is a big part of that, the investment advisory fee, to keep that down in a low area. So we operate these managed funds, as you, as you note, at very low cost. Number three, find managers who invest for the long term. Another cost issue. If your managers are lower turnover, uh, they will have less of that drag of transaction costs. Tax, most actively, tax effects, too. Most actively managers have. Yeah. And finally, make sure that you give the manager a discrete sector of the market to manage in. For example, uh, our Windsor, uh, Windsor Fund and Windsor 2 funds are basically large-cap value funds. So we make them stay on the value reservation. And then the icing on the cake is don't just use one manager. Use three or four, or five, and you'll find that the average value manager is average. Hmm. So that's the way our funds pretty much come out. There are exceptions, I, I admit, but in general, our, the average manager we pick is average, despite, you know, I would have hoped to be, be able to be a much better manager selector, and I did fine, no, no bombs, but uh, on average, they're more or less average. So we can win by about one and a half percentage points a year. This is clearly shown in the record as simply by taking one and a half percentage points of sales commissions, expense ratios, and turnover costs out of the equation. And uh, that, that's a winning strategy. Well, so you know, not everybody here is amused when I tell them this is how I did it. Uh, you know, They can have their own ways of thinking and doing, but the fact is that most of our actively managed funds have all those characteristics. No sales charge low management fees, uh, low portfolio turnover, uh, discrete market area, 
to, to invest in and uh, multiple managers. Well, this is going to be a compliment. You really, uh, Vanguard's really been the Walmart uh, of its industry in the sense that its its focus on costs has forced its competitors to pay attention to that. What do you think the impact has been on your competitors of that of that focus on cost? Well, I uh, I guess I'd say with uh, some regret uh, that uh, we certainly have forced the industry to pay attention on cost, but we don't seem to have forced the industry to get its cost down very much. Uh, you know, we do have a little price war going on in index funds, uh, in money market funds. Most funds have made the decision. That's where that's where the relationship between cost and return is evident every day. So dramatic. Uh, the, the correlation is 99 uh, between uh, low cost and high return in the money market area because we all own the same portfolios, for heaven's sake. How could it be different? Uh, and, but some people stay in the money market business just because the buyers are not so smart about it. Uh, and uh, this this problem, which as an economist you'll, you'll like this called, it's called uh, information asymmetry. Yep. Uh, the sellers know a lot of things the buyers do not know and don't always want to part with that information if it makes them look bad. So uh, in, 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 I think we have kept a sort of lid on in the bond area, in the index fund area, and certainly in the money market area, but not nearly as successfully as I would have hoped. Uh, there's plenty of time to do that, um, but time is money in this business, so the more time it takes to convert the world to this more intelligent way of investing, uh, it's gonna, it, they, they lose money on the way. So I'd like it all to happen overnight, and it's not going yeah, to happen Yeah, it's interesting how long it takes, though. And, and in other, I think in other areas uh, where quality is more transparent, it does happen closer to overnight. There's a, there's a recent trend, though, that has been working in the opposite direction, which is the growth of hedge funds. Uh, talk for a minute about hedge funds. The one thing that's going on is that hedge funds, it's my impression, are stealing some of the better managers, uh, but they also charge a much higher fee, uh, promising higher returns. What do you think's happening there? Well, uh, let me say a couple of things about hedge funds. First, it's one of the remarkable booms of our times. Uh, and uh, second, um, hedge funds are very, very diverse. I mean, there's almost no way to say hedge funds do A, B, or C. You know, there are some that are market neutral and have virtually sure. zero price risk. There are some that are leveraged so high that it would curl your hair if you knew it. Uh, there are some run by charlatans and some run by some of the most respected investors in America. I should say parenthetically that the ones run by the most respected investors in America uh, are not taking any more money uh, because they realize that as Warren Buffett says, a fat wallet is the enemy of superior returns. Hard to find. So uh, there's, there's a high level of uh, selectivity involved in picking hedge funds. And uh, for a whole lot of reasons, I think investors should stand, just let other people buy the hedge funds. Uh, first of all, investors are taxable. Most investors' accounts are taxable, and they would be for the hedge fund part of their account. And they're terribly tax inefficient. Uh, second, these colleges and universities, uh, and to some degree pension funds uh, that are using hedge funds with success, are not only tax uh, tax deferred, they don't pay any taxes, um, but they have infinite time horizons. Uh, they, can, they can buy a bunch of different hedge funds, uh, and they can um, hold them into infinity. Uh, they also have the resources uh, to pick... Uh, 
the best hedge fund managers. They can look into them. They can check their backgrounds. Uh, an article in the New York Times the other day saying Princeton University Investment Company that runs the endowment there and 13 or $14 billion uh, spends 400 hours in selecting a hedge fund manager. Uh, and they have you know smart people doing that. I wouldn't know how to spend 400 hours trying to find a hedge fund manager. Uh, so there's selectivity, there's great variation in competence, uh, and there's ultimately the record. Uh, in my book, my earlier book called The Battle for the Soul of Capitalism, I have a, a little, uh, a couple of pages on hedge funds, and um, I point out that, uh, don't hold me these exact numbers, but in the last uh, study was done at hedge funds over roughly the last decade, and uh, the average hedge fund had a return of, I think it was 9% uh, per year. Uh, doesn't sound so sensational, does it? And it sounds even less sensational when you compare it with the record of our Wellington Fund, which I mentioned earlier. It's a balanced fund. It owns bonds and stocks, just like hedge funds own bonds and stocks. I'm not sure of the exact balance of hedge funds. We don't have the information, but they're roughly comparable. And the Wellington Fund produces a return of 9.4%, I think is the number, with less volatility than the average hedge fund, and with infinitely greater tax efficiency. The Wellington Fund isn't taken in $100 billion a minute or whatever that whatever that number is. I guess it's $100 billion in every three or four months. Uh, I, I think that uh, hedge funds have gotten kind of this uh, you know, kind of a style. they got some glamour about them. Yeah, some glamour. And well, you, you I know, say just, handle with care. Yeah, you just have to pick the smart ones, just like everything else. Good yeah, luck. Just pick the just, smart you ones. need that 400-hour investment. Yep. Uh, I guess it depends on your hourly rate. Uh, I want to I ask you about that book you mentioned, The Battle for the Soul of Capitalism. Uh, in that book, you decried a loss of honesty and trust and the impact that that had on capitalism and its reputation. Comment on the backlash against that betrayal. I'm thinking in particular of the regulatory environment that businesses operate in now with Sarbanes-Oxley. Um, has that been a productive transformation or worth it, too costly? Well, we needed a Sarbanes-Oxley bill. I don't get any question about that. I mean, the, uh, a lack of financial controls uh, among our large corporations. I mean, even uh, as recently as a couple of days ago, uh, General Motors, usually the the you know gold standard of accounting, announced that it had a whole series of errors in their financial controls, and we're going to have to restate, I think it was five years' earnings. Uh, It's quite shocking. Now, businessmen don't like financial controls because they cost money to implement, and uh, the costs of Sarbanes-Oxley, and particularly, basically, there are very few complaints, even in the business community, about Sarbanes-Oxley, except uh, for the complaint about Section 404, which is the, the control section and um, requiring these careful controls over financial uh, you know, cash flows and, and um, each, each area of the business and so on. It's complex, and it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it takes work to fix. Those costs will go down with time. But if they're really onerous controls that uh, we can maybe operate to, to resolve uh, with less hassle, with less cost, and with greater efficiency, I'm all for it. Uh, the problem with laws in this country is that they're not so easy to change. Regulations are a little bit easier to change. But what Sarbanes-Oxley essentially does when it says the CEO has to certify and when it has things like the Public Company Accounting Board, uh, and uh, which hasn't done very much, by the way. I'm a little disappointed they haven't 
rap the knuckles of more accountants. Uh, not tough enough, I think. Um, and uh, another provision, which I don't believe has been applied in Sarbanes-Oxley, and that is if you say your earnings are $2 a share, you the CEO, and a year later the earnings get restated to a dollar a share, uh, the law calls for disgorgement of the profits you made. In other words, you're not allowed to to uh, exercise. You're not allowed. To, you have to send back the profits you made and the options uh, that were uh, because the stock is selling in in the stock market at twenty dollars a share instead of ten. Uh, and I, as far as I know, that practice that, that that has not been enforced in any significant degree. There are lots of good things about it. It's uh, it's the intercession of government, which I do not intuitively like, into an area where, you know, businesses behave differently. They wouldn't have the intersection. Yeah, I so, guess. So uh, I, I don't think it's fair to say, uh, you know, we did wrong and we'll fix it ourselves. I think I think there's a point at which even Alexander Hamilton, as I point out in my book, would have agreed with this. If if the private system isn't working, we got to bring the government in. Well, I, I guess I disagree with you. I think uh, you're right. If they say we've done wrong, we need to fix it ourselves. I think. The fixing takes place in the marketplace by investors and consumers choosing uh, products and 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 assets that are more honest than others. Those that are dishonest get punished by by the marketplace. So the real question for me always is which works better. They both are imperfect, right? Using the freedom to invest and in, and to purchase the products that are of highest quality has is imperfect because it, it will there will be cheaters from time to time who exploit people. Questions whether the regulatory fix has done better. My concern is that large corporations, you're right, that they don't they don't mind regulation so much because they have the ability to spread those fixed costs of compliance across a large number of sales. Smaller firms find it much harder to comply, and so I worry that there's an unseen effect of um, of hurting innovation. Well, you know, there's a reality here, and it's a very disappointing reality, and that is the counterweight. Uh, to this, uh, what I call managers' capitalism, uh, with managers and the accounting firms and the lawyers all kind of in league uh, to make sure the managers are rewarded, uh, has gotten in the way of traditional owners' capitalism. That's the theme of my book, The Battle of the Soul of Capitalism. The managers have taken the the uh, reins away from the owners uh, because the directors don't seem to be doing. The corporate directors have a responsibility to see that management's operating in shareholder interest. Don't seem to be doing much about it, whether it's option plans, dated, predated options, uh, post-dated options, I should say, uh, executive compensation, uh, financial engineering. The directors don't seem to be standing up, so one would think the investors would stand up. And that's the way the capitalistic system should work. These security analysts, thousands and thousands of them, I think there are 100,000 security analysts, should be saying to these corporations, look, uh, this is wrong and that's wrong. Uh, tell me where you got that 8.5% return on your pension plan yeah. that you're assuming and things like that. But the problem is that our investment system, our owners, aren't owners anymore. They're agents of owners. Uh, nearly 70% of all stock in America is not held by direct owners, but by financial institutions. And uh, they do not seem to observe, uh, they're not actively engaged in corporate governance, they're not actively engaged in making sure that companies are managed for the, sh- the shareholders. They seem to me to be much more actively engaged in trading pieces of paper, that is to say shares of stock back and forth, and uh, they don't seem to care much about anything except whether the company CEO meets the earnings expectations he's promised or doesn't. Uh, 
And those expectations are almost always met by fair means, but sometimes by foul. So the system isn't working. And what I talk about in the book is we have this old ownership society, direct ownership, that's gone and won't return. We have an agency society where the agents are not serving their principals, uh, the hmm. mutual fund owners and pension beneficiaries. So we need a fiduciary society. And I would say bring government in not to run that society, but to say that investment fiduciaries first obligation is to serve the benefits from those that they have the responsibility to invest for and uh, engage in corporate governance. You know, act as owners. Yeah, well, uh, act we, as true fiduciaries. And that's what we've kind of lost in well, all we need, we need those those funds and managers to have the incentive to do that. And I think that's that's the challenge. And uh, But that is an interesting next chapter for uh, for capitalism. I, I think the glass is half full. I think it's it's we're doing pretty well. But uh, it was a bad episode, set of episodes. We're almost out of time. Um, what are you proudest of? What have you achieved that you're proudest of? Well, you know, when you're operating at uh, 80 miles an hour, 100 miles an hour, 120 miles an hour on the Autobahn, um, you're focusing on <laughs> the journey and not the destination. Sure. Uh, you don't have a lot of the time to sit back and say, uh, you know, I'm proud of this and that and the other thing. Uh, and one is also remind, reminded a little bit of the biblical injunction that pride goeth before a fall, although in fairness the Bible actually says false pride goeth before a fall. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, I, I, I'm, I don't think I'll use the word proud, but I'm obviously pleased uh, that I've had all the opportunities I've had in this life and to capitalize on them, to build a little better world for investors, uh, to start a unique company, that still hasn't, whose fundamental precepts, a mutual mutual fund group, uh, have yet to be uh, copied. I think one of them, I'd be proud if somebody would at last follow us. Uh, obviously, it's a thrill uh, to have started the first index fund, uh, the world's first index fund. It didn't require you know any genius. I don't have that, uh, and uh, you know I, I, the luck has played an enormous enormous role in my life. And uh, one shouldn't be proud of luck. Uh, one should feel uh, lucky about luck, for the want of a better formulation. So uh, I think I've made the most, if I may say so, of the opportunities that, that have been lucky enough, that I've been lucky enough to have descend on me. But um, I don't know. There'll be a time for pride maybe someday. Uh, but maybe not either. And I guess I'd say kind of so what? Well, I, I should, I guess, reveal and confess to our listeners that that I own some Vanguard products uh, happily, and I, I think a lot of people look at you as someone to be thankful for because, oh, you've made me some money and you saved me some costs, and perhaps to the extent that your competitors have been forced to, to uh, compete against you, they've had to do better than they otherwise would have done, and I think as an economist, though, that, that's as a personal investor, but as an economist, I think your impact is much greater. And, and what I'm most grateful to you for is transforming that retail marketplace in such a way that more money has gone into capital markets than otherwise would because you've closed the gap between uh, before and after fee returns. And as a result of that, more things get done in America by, by business by productive people, by innovators that wouldn't have been financially viable in a world where returns were different. And we don't see that. You can't measure it. You could write the greatest 
PhD dissertation and of all time, the greatest treatise of all time, and you still wouldn't be able to measure with any precision the impact of our capital market transformation of the last 25 years on our daily lives. But it's real. uh, It's just hard to see, and I'm thankful for that. I think um, that's uh, a glorious thing, and and you're – the gap between your reputation and your actual achievements, I think, is is there because of that unseen nature of those those transformations. Well, I can tell you this: that uh, again, I'm not sure I want to use the word pride, but I hear from investors face to face when I'm traveling or out in the, around the around the world or the the country or even in the Philadelphia area where where I am. Uh, I get letters from investors literally every day. Uh, and uh, when I when I find when they tell me how much investing uh, with my uh, principles and investing at Vanguard, which has followed my principles, has meant to them, I must say it gives me a very warm feeling. You know, to help one's fellow man is a pretty terrific way to feel. Yeah. And uh, you know, the number of negative letters I get from people. I can't remember the last time I got one, maybe 25 years ago. That's because you have a vigilant staff. That, that uh, No, they would never dare do that. <laughs> Anything negative goes to the top of the pile. <laughs> My guest today has been John Bogle, founder of the Vanguard Group, the man who created the first index fund and changed the face of investment and thereby the face of America. Mr. Bogle, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thanks, Russ. It was fun talking to you. And I appreciate your kind words, too. Oh, it's my pleasure. Take care. Okay, bye. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <music>